Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Faith here with your welcome toast. Let us all remember never to ask a person eating ice cream straight from the carton how they're doing. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We're in our culinary studio at the Big G, Gateway Community College in New Haven. Five huge professional kitchens is what we have at our disposal. My treasured food buddies are here. Among them, I would say Danny Meyer, who is, I would describe him as a restaurateur extraordinaire. Of course, he's the creator of the Shake Shacks. He has all kinds of restaurants in New York and other places. He's just an amazing professional. So, Danny, it's an honor to have you on the show. I love the way you do what you do. How do you think it feels to me? This is my honor to be with you, Faith, so thank you. Oh, you're so kind to say that. Okay, so here's what happens. I make a reservation at your restaurant, Maialino, in New York City for this weekend, and then I go to my Internet. I'm searching around for something, and what comes up but a blog, Food 52, and they said, in the history of the blog, no cake or dessert of any kind has been more popular than this particular cake, the olive oil cake, and it comes from, guess where, Danny Meyer's Maialino. <laughs> you know what? I love that story, and it, it actually helps explain something that happened to me last month. I went to Singapore for the first time in my life, and I went to a brand-new restaurant. They were showing me around the place, and I said, what is that? That looks so good. And they started laughing. And I said, why are you laughing at me? And they said, because we took Maialino's olive oil cake recipe and just added rosemary and pine nuts to the top before mm. we baked it. And I, I, was, I didn't know how they got the recipe. Now I wow. know. <laughs> Danny, I have this idea for you. I'm here with Bailey Pryor, who does a pure rum in the 1920s style with not a single additive. <laughs> and we've just been tasting it on the show. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the bottle of the real McCoy, as it's called, and looking at a picture of the olive oil cake. And I'm thinking, ooh, yeah. those nice two match, things together, yes. wouldn't that just... Mm-hmm. be amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Real McCoy rum. I, b- I bet that real McCoy rum would taste good with a Shack burger, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> actually, actually, it might even be better blended in with no. some of our frozen custard. I know. So as we said to you in the promo earlier, we're having Danny on because we're excited. The studio's in New Haven, and so we have Shake Shack right here, and we're thrilled about that. And then we have Fairfield County. But now a new one is opened in the greater Hartford area, and that is in West Hartford at Corbin's Corner. It's across the street from West Farms Mall. Many people know where that is, and it's in the old Sears building, which I love. So, Danny, is there a formula in each of these Shake Shacks where you have to have these classics? Is there anyone who gets to put a special kind of local spin on something? How does it work for you? 
We call it the 80-20 rule. 80% of anything you see or taste at a Shake Shack should be consistent with every other Shake Shack you've ever visited, but 20% should be specific to that location. And that includes ingredients that get blended in with the frozen custard. It could be the beers that we serve. Uh, mm. For example, in Hartford, there are three beers that are all brewed in, in uh, Hartford County. In your Shake Shack in New Haven, we actually started with the architecture. We're on the walls of the Shake Shack in New Haven, our repurposed bleacher seats from the original Yale Bowl. And then we even created a, a special hot dog in uh, New Haven called the Handsome Dan, you know, based on the bulldog. Mm -hmm. And that recipe became so popular in New Haven that it ended up on the menus at every Shake Shack thereafter. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So it can be a test market when you open in a place. By the way, in the new location in West Hartford, your local beers are City Steam, Old Burnside, and Thomas Hooker. When you open a place and you feature local liquors, let's say, do you find that that local population goes to those first? Not necessarily, but I think whether or not people drink their own beer, it does help to create a sense of place and it. it creates a sense that this is my shack. And I think that's really one of the things that we borrowed from the fine dining experience like Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern, mm -hmm. you know, that got us started in the first place way before I was known as a hamburger guy. <laughs> I'd yeah. like to think that we had a couple <laughs> decent restaurants in, in Manhattan as well. And oh. we we asked the question, which is whoever wrote the rule that just because you're a chain that you can't make every link in that chain be, yeah. you know, very, very personalized. And, yeah. and so it's, it's, as you said earlier, it's not only a way to help people feel like they belong, but it's also a way to help us innovate because some of the ideas that come locally end up spreading throughout the whole company. Can you tell us about the burger? I think a lot of our listeners have had the burger. I had it today. You folks sent over lunch, and we were thrilled, and I loved my burger. You even do one gluten-free. But there was one that one of the staff said, the chicken shack, that was so delicious and unexpected. What is that? <laughs> Funny you should say that because I had one of those for lunch today myself. It is an organic chicken breast that is skinless, but we do coat it. It's a fried chicken sandwich that is about as yummy as any fried chicken sandwich I've had. Interestingly, the innovation for that sandwich began in an odd way. There's shredded lettuce uh, on top of it. And the shredded lettuce is actually wh where that sandwich came from in the first place. Why? Because... In order to get the lettuce leaf perfect for the Shack Burgers, which we sell so many of at Shake Shack, we have to trim the outer edges of the lettuce so it fits perfectly on the bun. And we noticed after many years that it was appalling how much perfectly good lettuce, just because it was not part of the, the proper shape, we were wasting. And so we needed to come up with a recipe for which we could put this shredded lettuce to use. So believe it or not, when was the last time you heard about a chicken sandwich that was actually founded upon shredded lettuce, even before you got to the chicken? <laughs> and that, that's what happened. So Vegetarians, the are <laughs> Vegetarians are cheering. Okay, so in addition to letting people know about Shake Shack in West Hartford, I wanted to ask you about... Uh, the decision that you made as a company, uh, for instance, at that particular Shake Shack, 
to give 5% of the sales from one of your desserts to benefit an organization that, for me personally, it just means the world to me, the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp in Ashford, Connecticut. Well, again, Faith, that came from what we've always done in our fine dining restaurants. And it happens that all of our restaurants, even every single Shake Shack, has always supported Share Our Strength, which is a Mm -hmm. wonderful organization that fights childhood hunger through their No Kid Hungry campaign. But in addition to that, we have always asked each one of our restaurants to come up with a cause that matters to them. And it's not a top-down thing. For example, in in Manhattan, uh, some of the restaurants pick causes that may have to do with hunger. Some may have to do with education. Some may have to do with cancer. Some may have to do with hospice. It turns out that in Connecticut, all of our shacks decided that they wanted to work with the -the hole-in-the-wall game camp. And it turns out that one of our longtime managers, both from Gramercy Tavern and Tabla and Mylino, has a daughter who experienced being on the receiving end of the care at the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. He has since not only introduced many of us to the organization, but has gone on their board of directors. And so because we have you know, really felt the efficacy of what they do in terms of mm. creating joy for people uh, who may not have felt joy for some time, that happens to be the organization that our Connecticut shacks picked. And then we always attach that to a portion of the sales of one of our frozen custard concretes, which I urge your <laughs> listeners to try if they've never had one. Uh, you know, first of all, we just, on the show, we love that you do this because we're, we're so fond of them. We just, we took the whole show to um, Newman's Own and wow. did the whole thing with Bob Forrester on the board. And, oh, we had the best time there. So we're all into restaurants who find a way to give back, even in this difficult climate for restaurants, because food costs have gone up so much for them. It's a kind of vicious cycle. So you can see your favorite restaurants disappearing. So I'm glad, Danny, that you're solid and finding a way to give back to the community. You know, you're nice to, to put it that way, but I also think that in doing a good thing, you're also doing a selfish thing. I, I kind of feel like when you take care of your community, it's like reaching out to give someone a hug, you're going to probably get one back. And, for example, when Shake Shack does the great American shake sale for a month, what that means is that every time anybody comes to Shake Shack, if they give us $2, we give that $2 right to share our strength, no kid hungry, and we give the guest a certificate for a milkshake, which costs somewhere around $5. So you might say, well, you gave me two that I'm going to give to share our strength. I just gave you five. What a great way to go out of business. And I would say, what a great way to stay in business and yeah. uh, help feed hungry kids at the same time. Yeah, Because yeah. you're going to come back. Absolutely right. It's good for everybody, right? So one more question about your attention to detail with training staff. I've never been in sort of operation of many restaurants where people are so well-trained uh, so careful about the customer. Everybody's got a certain kind of vibe going on, and not in a, a robotic way, but in a beautiful way. And yet you've got to pay attention to the bottom line. What's your philosophy about training staff? What's the key to getting them to understand? Well, the key is hire hard and train easy. We'd rather hire people who are well-trained by their entire upbringing because the key thing that I think our guests pick up on is how our staff 
preach them, not how well they poured the wine. I'd, I'd like to think that we do a good job of teaching people to clear the plate properly and, and decant a bottle of wine the right way. But I think the thing that we're most known for, whether it's a fine dining place like the Modern or Gramercy Tavern uh, or Union Square Cafe, is how the hospitality felt. And that's something that I would say, as I think about Shake Shack, that we are proudest about was to prove to ourselves first, because Shake Shack started as a hot dog cart in Madison Square Park, that you shouldn't have to pay more money to have someone be happy to see you. That, there, there's, you know, you hear about food costs rising and you hear about rent rising, but you don't hear anything ever that it costs more money today to smile than it did yesterday. I used to go to that one, that first one at, at Madison Square Park, and that was a, you know, that was a park with drug dealers. You certainly didn't want to go in there at night. <laughs> and then Shake Shack and people started to pay attention, and it, it just, everything changed. It was really transforming socially in many, many ways, Danny. Fast question also about hot dogs. I was reading a book by a very noteworthy author who was describing these places where, like, say, at racetracks in New York State, there were people who there were concentrations of people with mad cow disease. They traced it to the hot dogs at the track. Well, I became terrified of one of my most loved food items. How should we choose when we're buying a hot dog? Well, that's a big question. There are so many hot dogs out there. I can tell you that in the case of Shake Shack, we work exclusively with one hot dog producer in Chicago called Vienna Beef, and it is a fantastic company mm-hmm. that cares deeply about how their raw ingredients are sourced and how they make the product. It's the most beloved hot dog, and we've actually, every year, we, we scratch our heads and say, is there one that we like even better? And both from a um, from an ingredient standpoint and a taste standpoint, we just have never found one. But there's what a big world of hot dogs out there. <laughs> yeah, what should we do? What, what about the rest of us? I, I don't think that you probably have to worry about dying from eating a hot dog. I just don't think you probably have to. And I think that most places you're going to buy hot dogs are reputable. Okay. I, I'm not someone who eats a hot dog every day of his life. But um, <laughs> I would, though. <laughs> eat them from good places. Thank you, Danny. And congratulations on Shake Shack in West Hartford, just across from West Farms Mall, and for your contribution to Newman's Own and the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp in Ashford at the root of what you're doing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Faith. Okay, take care. You too. Danny Meyer of Gramercy Tavern, Maialino, Union Square Cafe in New York City, and also all the Shake Shacks, which are, you know, just seems like on every planet. <laughs> okay. We're excited, though, locally in terms of New Haven, Fairfield County, and now West Hartford. Ahead, we have the story of rum and one made in Connecticut that's a knockout, and that's the real McCoy. They're with us. And this bakery and cafe of all kinds of foods, totally gluten-free, opened in two places in Connecticut. We want to find out about that, too. More mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org. And, of course, we'll be right back.
Dipping our toes in the water I don't care if it gets any hotter It's you and me Remembering how to have fun Let's put our hearts together Two parts love and a pinch of good weather And top it all off with the sun And mix it with rum I'm Faith Middleton. You can sign up for a free podcast of the show. It's a copy of the show. So what happens is you sign up once at foodschmooze.org, and we send it to you, and you can listen on your schedule. That's the way people listen now. If you don't, we're inviting you to give it a try and see if you like it. Even sometimes when I don't listen that way, I like the archiving of a thing. I can say, what was it they said about that lamb? or whatever it is, and go right back to that item. So there you go. As you know, coming up in our next segment, um, in depth, we're going to be talking with Kelly and David Boudreau. They have a gluten-free bakery and cafe, a couple of them in Connecticut. I've asked them to join in on this conversation. My guest is Bailey Pryor. And Bailey, I mean, we could take up this segment with awards and stuff. Like, <laughs> I know. It's like, so, um, Thanks, Faith. He works. <laughs> in um, film and television. He's been there doing that for 30 years. Producer, director, and he's been nominated for, well, and this is old because that yeah. gluten-free <laughs> just movie that you did. How right. many? Uh, I've now been nominated 16 times. Uh, it's, it's like, but the gluten-free movie you had on, you know, we promoted on the show. Yeah, yeah. That got, how many nominations? That got two nominations this year for an Emmy Congratulations. Award. Congratulations. Okay, awesome. so he's worked, his stuff has been on all the stations and PBS and he's also president and CEO of Telemark Films in Mystic, Connecticut. But Bailey is, you usually hear him on the show, as founder and CEO of The Real McCoy Rum. That is a rum that we love a lot. It's based, that name is based on a film that he produced for PBS, same name. It won five Emmy Awards. The rum itself, Real McCoy, has achieved or won more than 85 major spirits industry awards worldwide, and it's now in 16 states in the U.S., right here. It started here in Connecticut and 18 countries in Europe. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's, it's so great, great to, to have here. you here and to the Boudreaux. Thank I'm so you. glad you're here. Nice to be we're gonna, here. We're going to start doing your food in just one oh, second. Yes. Tell me this, Bailey. The history of rum, if we went back to a date... We do this with chocolate. We say the Spanish brought it from somewhere. Rum came here how? Well, basically, Christopher Columbus was the first one that was credited with carrying sugarcane into the Caribbean. He brought it with him to the island of Hispaniola. So that's fourteen the year 1492. And, and did was, they know what to do with it? They did know what to do with it, sure. People were distilling it for about 5,000 years. But he brought the sugar cane there so they could have sugar, essentially. And when he did that, it was kind of ironic because the whole reason he went to Hispaniola was to find the lost city of gold, El Dorado. And within 80 As years... we all do. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, he didn't find El Dorado because it's a mythical city and there's no city made of gold. But he brought this sugar cane. And within 80 years of doing this, the price of refined sugar from the Caribbean mm-hmm. was worth more per ounce than the price of gold. So he actually brought the gold with him and didn't know it at the time, which is kind of interesting. I love that. Isn't that a great story? So you and rum, 
Yes. Why did that happen? I mean, were you looking for a quote-unquote market? Is there something internal to you? What well, I've happened? always been a rum fan. I grew up racing sailboats in Mystic, Connecticut, and, oh. and so rum's always been a part of that. You know, So if you're a mm-hmm. sailor, rum is sort of in your blood, I guess. Dark and stormy. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's one of those things that I love the idea of starting a rum because I was making a film about a rum runner. And when I found these photographs that I used about Bill McCoy and the rum runners of the Prohibition era, and the name of the movie is The Real McCoy. If you check out that movie, it's a really interesting story because McCoy was the first rum runner to fill up a boat full of rum in January of 1920 down in the Caribbean. He sailed it up to New York City and acted as a floating liquor store three miles offshore. He also came to Montauk Point and all up and down the eastern seaboard. And three miles out in 1920 was international waters, so that was not illegal. So he could sit out there with impunity within sight of the Statue of Liberty and everyone would come out in their boats at night, and they would raft up with McCoy's boats, and they would party. They'd bring bands. Let's they'd bring food. It. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, it was like a big yacht club party. I mean, it is. That's just the most fantastic story. Yeah, yeah. And then at night, late at night, when the party was done around 2 o'clock in the morning or so, there'd be one Coast Guard boat going back and forth across the three-mile line. And all the boats at once would fill up everything that McCoy had, and they would all go back into the city at the same time. So it was like a scene from the Serengeti plane with the one lion and the hundred wildebeests. And they knew they'd only catch one of them, and everybody else would make it. So that's what they did. And that's how McCoy ended up supplying about two million bottles of rum to the speakeasies of New York. Here's what I, I need to know. If we're looking at wine, at certain other spirits, age can convey a real value to something. Are there very old rums? Do rums age well? Are there very old rums that are very dear in price and rare to taste as an experience? Well, it depends on where it's made. Now, there's a big misnomer about rum and the aging of rum. So in the Caribbean, we lose between 6 and 8% every year to the angel's share, which is just evaporation right through the wooden barrel. And if you live in Scotland, let's say, you'll only lose about 1% of your whiskey. If you live in Kentucky, you might lose 2% of your bourbon that you're making, but in the Caribbean where you're making your rum, you're going to lose between 6 and 8%. So after 12 years, you've got roughly 70% has evaporated from the barrels. You only have about 30% left. So Is technically, that climate? climate? That's climate. Yeah, yeah. And there's, it's physics. There's nothing you can do about it. There's a lot of marketing so, so, and mythology around that. Why do you bring that up? How well, does that connect? Basically, at 20 years, there's nothing left in the barrel. So there's really no such thing as a 20-year-old rum at any affordable price. But are the barrels that were used that might have absorbed that old rum, are those especially valuable because they might impart a certain flavor to the rum you put in them? They certainly can, but a barrel is a lot like a battery. Every time you use it, it gets a little bit weaker in its effect. So if you have a fresh oak barrel that's never been used for anything else, you char the inside of that barrel, you put some rum in it, you'll have lots of lignans and tannins and and wood sugars and things coming into your spirit, and you'll get those flavor notes. As time goes by, that gets weaker and weaker and weaker. So Yes, it will absorb whatever alcohol, but if you let that barrel then sit for a while dry, it'll, all that alcohol will leach right out and evaporate away, and the barrel will dry out and fall apart. Uh-huh. So there's a window in which you can use those barrels. Now, I could make a 24-year-old rum if I wanted to. I, w- I would lay down 100 barrels. I would let them all sit for 12 years, and they'd all go down to 30%, right? So then I'd top them all up. I'd end up with 30 full barrels. I'd let that sit for another 12 years. Remember, this is physics, not marketing. They would all go down to 12% again. I would end up with 10 full barrels. So if I wanted to have a 24-year, a real 24-year-old rum made in the Caribbean or anywhere along the equator, for that matter, you would end up with 90% evaporating with no economic benefit to you. There's absolutely no way I could sell any of that for less than about $300, maybe $400 a bottle. 
but there's no real market for that in the United States, so people don't really do that. You hear about older brands, but they're not saying that it's 24 years old or 20 years old. They'll say things like Solera 20 or Slow Age 23 mm-hmm. or whatever like that. And yeah. it's not, you know, I mean, it's a marketing term. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. one brand in particular I see all over the world, and, and on every single bottle it says cask number 21. That must be a huge cask if every single barrel, every single bottle comes out of cask number 21. So it's, it's marketing. Uh, it's yeah. not necessarily fact yeah. about what's actually in that bottle. We really want to help improve that in the United States and have people really recognize the fact that if it says the one legal age statement, that legal age statement is aged and then a number like five and then the word years. Aged five years is the only legal age statement in the U.S. If you forget what that is, look on any whiskey bottle. It'll only say that on a whiskey bottle. But rum says all sorts of numbers. Bailey Pryor, Real McCoy Rum, based in Connecticut. And before we get off the subject, do you have anything in your basement where you're trying an experiment or something at the factory? Where you, Have you got anything going on? We have secret? all kinds of special editions that we're aging right now. Our master distiller, Richard Seal, has a number of limited edition concepts. And what, what, what does that is, mean? That means we're using different types of wood. We could use ex-sherry barrels, former cognac casks. We, beer? Not beer. Wine? Uh, would you use? Certainly wine. We've done Besides things with sherry. Zinfandel. There's uh, sherry, cognac, port, all sorts of different types of wood that was used for other products. They've all imparted those wood sugars in different ways. There's different trees. You know, the white American oak is called the Quercus alba. There's also the Quercus petraeus, petraea, sorry, that is the, um, <laughs> the European oak, which is found in Hungary and Poland and France and, and places like that. What you do is stand around in taste. With that's your, my job. Pretty much that's all I do. You stand around that's all and I contribute <laughs> to the whole you, thing. No, and you say, this port barrel mm-hmm. is giving us something that I think will really be valued by people, curating, essentially. Richard Seal is curating, our master distiller. He's the real genius at this. He and I agreed on a certain style of rum. We wanted a traditional Barbados rum that would have been the type of rum that Bill McCoy would have had on the deck of his ship. Oh, that, that's a great opening to get to this. There you yeah. go. So try, try <laughs> a sip. Try a sip. Truly. And what you've got here is, is very rare in the rum industry because it's completely unadulterated. It has no additives, and there's lots of rums put additives in their products. So can I bring you in, Kelly and David Boudreau? You bet. From Vernon and Bloomfield. You do this gluten-free bakery. Yes. Every food is, even celiacs can eat there. This is truly gluten-free because... Because we have no additives in it. And what, what happens is every distilled spirit, when it goes into a still, what happens is you heat it up in the still, the, the liquid, which is like a nice wine or a beer. You heat it up inside the still, and the alcohol in that solution will turn into a vapor, and that will rise up in the still. So when alcohol moves from liquid to vapor phase, gluten can't do that. So it right. will never leave the liquid solution. So everything that goes through a still is going to be 100% gluten-free unless they do something they to it afterwards. After. So, so let's underline unless. Unless, unless exactly. they add something and to it after distillation. So this sentence that we hear in the gluten-free world, all spirits are okay, is not necessarily true. You've got to check if there's an additive after distilling. Right, yes. but Faith, that's really hard because in the United States we don't have any labels on any alcohol bottles. Look at any bottle of beer, wine, or spirits, and you have no nutritional information, no ingredients, no sugar, mm-hmm. no, no vitamins, none of that stuff listed the way you do on every single form of packaged food. You do not have it on any single form of packaged alcohol. Mm. So I just took a sip of this, as I've done before, and it is 
a spectacular well, thank round. You. Delicious. Yeah, thank I you. really mean that. If you weren't here, I would say the same thing. <laughs> it's <laughs> just you. delicious. So we did name a tiki cocktail after you, if you remember. I know. What was it called? Faith and tiki. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I just love that. I'm very proud to be associated with you. I <laughs> must you. say. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so when you were creating this particular rum, you wanted it to be something that. It was traditional McCoy. to Barbados. Yeah. yeah. And here's why. Because well, Bill McCoy, when I was making the documentary film, I found all these photographs that he and his crew had taken on the deck of his ship. And they, he later donated to several museums, including Mystic Seaport and the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. And in these photographs, you can see um, images of barrels of rum being loaded onto the deck of McCoy's ship. And on the barrels, it has custom stamps that say Barbados rum. My wife Jennifer and I had the terrible, awful job of flying to Barbados to find the rum. It was really just tragic in the middle of winter having to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so we, uh, but we flew down there. We met, we met with the head of the National Archives and showed her the photographs and said, do you know which distillery this would have been? And she said, there's no way to determine from this. And we looked in the archives, and we couldn't find any evidence. But she said, basically, one of the oldest and largest operators, or traders on the island at the time, was the Seal family from Foursquare Distillery. And she said, it's probably them. And I thought it might have been another distillery that's very well known. And I went and met with those guys, and they said, it's definitely not us. We weren't doing this until 1957. So back in 1920, it would have had to have been Foursquare. So we went and met with the Foursquare family, and they agreed to make the same style of rum that they were making four generations earlier. Still, the st- same family still owns the business. So they could? They just look up the recipe? Yeah, and because there's no recipe. It's just rum and filtered spring water. Because rum as in byproduct of sugarcane. Yes, distilled molasses wine is basically what rum is in the U.S. And now what's happened is... As we've industrialized the rum industry, like in Barbados in the year 1918, there were 75 distilleries on the island, all little tiny mom and pop shops. Today there's four, and they're all huge. And so mm-hmm. what you've lost there is that tradition and the pot still. In the 1930s and 40s, the multi-column still came into play, and everybody started using that. But the difference is that is so efficient at extracting alcohol, that giant rum factory, that it strips out most of the flavor and aroma. So they have to find a way to make it taste a less like lighter fluid and more like something you <laughs> want to drink. So they'll put stuff in it, and that's what, how you I end up know. with this tradition since the 40s of doing that. Wow. I'm going to ask you a tough question, Bill. Sure. Um, I've never asked you this before. A lot of people who start out doing these spirits and things would like in the end to have been successful in terms of everything, labor, money that they put into it, to be bought out by someone larger, which can mean, as you've just described, that the product is going to change and you have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. Have you and Jennifer wrestled with that? You know, yes, uh, we've been approached by most of the major companies at this point to sell our company to them, and we've decided not to do that. We did find one really great partner who is not interested in buying us out. We're not interested in selling out. We're not interested in changing the way we're making our product. But we do need a bigger partner with more capital who's got leverage in the industry worldwide. Sure, sure. So a group called Constellation Brands has made an investment in us, and they're the third largest spirits company in the world. And this year they're taking us from 16 states to about 44 states in the U.S. And we're now in 22 countries in Europe, including India and the 
the United Arab Emirates. We're in, in Dubai and places like that. So it's really France? starting to grow. France? We're in France, yeah. yeah. Uh, because France is just beginning to understand cocktails. <laughs> you know, they, really, <laughs> they, they normally say it just ruins the palate. You know? It's like, what are you, crazy? Yeah. So I'm fascinated that this might be a, a great thing for France. Yeah, it's a great, well, this great is opportunity. A, this is a beautiful product. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks. I, really I know I know how you do what you do and that it's really quite pure. It's wonderful. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank, I appreciate that. Thank faith. you. I'm imagining all of these wonderful things I could do and I know you shouldn't cook with this, but I'm tasting all oh, these flavors. Oh, people cook with it all the time. And I'm going, "Oh, I think we can come up with some, you know." Yeah, we awesome have friends recipes. who make chocolates and cakes oh, yeah. and things with great the rum. Pairing. It's a great thing. And in mm. fact, several chefs around Connecticut and, and around the country are actually cooking with this on a pretty regular basis. Okay, so, so I don't feel guilty. No, no, anymore. don't feel okay, guilty at all. This <laughs> rum is really, really good it's for that awesome. person. Yeah. 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 So, if you want to find out more about the real McCoy rum and Bailey Pryor and his many, many awards, go to <laughs> foodschmooze.org. Bailey, please stay where you are. I'm going to turn now, though you've been cheerleaders during this conversation, you were wonderful. Uh, Kelly and David Boudreau, who are co-owners, also husband and wife, of something called Nature's Grocer Gluten-Free Cafe. There's one on East Street in Vernon, Connecticut, and now on Park Avenue in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Coming up next, we're going to find out about this gluten-free cafe slash bakery. It connects with Bailey Pryor's rum, really, because that is a true gluten-free rum. Plus, he's a dessert lover, so how can he resist this? We love the local. As you can hear, please support your local food growers and food makers. And we'll be right back. Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. The senior producer and senior editor is Robin Doyen Aiken. And to hear the show on Connecticut Public Radio, it airs Thursdays at 3 and 9 and Saturdays at noon. Podcasts and our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. Bailey Pryor is staying with us from the real McCoy rum. I'm so thrilled about that. I wouldn't miss it. (laughs) Made in Connecticut. I love this guy. And we are now, we're excited because now we're going to focus on Kelly and David Boudreaux. They are co-owners of Nature's Grocer Gluten-Free Cafe. And they have these locations on East Street in Vernon and Park Avenue in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Of course, they're on the show because they are so amazingly gluten-free. Even someone with celiac, welcome yes, to the show officially, someone us. with celiac yes. illness, which is very serious, could eat in your cafe. That Absolutely. is so difficult yes. and so amazing. So we've got food in front of us, right, Bailey? We've Absolutely. Got we were pigging dis- out during the break. Dis- awesome. <laughs> I had what's called the crack 
chicken salad. Chicken salad, AKA yes. the curry chicken salad. But yes, it's the cracked chicken salad. It's <laughs> absolutely delicious. Thank you. What the heck is in there? Well, there's is some secret things in there, and we've had friends who we love very dearly that no matter how much rum they you, you give us. You told them and they're mysteriously missing now? Yes. Right? They're like, right. we just can't yes. seem to replicate it, but it's um, <laughs> it's got vegan mayonnaise and mm. special seasonings, and there's a secret there. edition. In, did you just give it away? No. Oh, no okay. What did you say? <laughs> Roll back, the, roll tape. back the tape. Roll back the tape. <laughs> I think he did. <laughs> Not everything. But it no. is organic chicken. Absolutely. Um, obviously gluten-free and so lots of spicy, fresh spicy, delicious. Yeah. Absolutely Big delicious. Big seller. I know. I have many gluten-free friends. Uh, and Bailey, you've done a film. I just did a film, yeah. It's called Gluten-Free. It's playing on PBS right now. And it's really the thing to say. If you have Thank gluten-free you. friends or someone with celiac, which is the ultimate version of that, it's a remarkable film because it's not that it says it's this that's causing it. It just says scientists who've been studying this for 30 years or more. That's right. have really not figured out exactly where it's coming from or why. They think it might be an environmental issue, but they can't find a biomarker. They can't find a gene that makes it very identifiable for people. And there's folks that have gone 60, 70 years of their life having no problems with gluten, and then one day, bing, they're celiac. That's exactly what happened with the founders of Nature's Grocer. In this world that we're in... Kelly and David, how do you find individual ingredients to put in all the foods you make, whether they're savory or desserts, that are gluten-free? I am amazed with so many gluten-free friends about how wheat is in everything, either to add weight to a product or I don't even know why they're using it, but it's in things that absolutely blow my mind, even chicken breasts. Yes, and you know, you mentioned earlier soy sauce. You wouldn't think has it in it. It has an additive. The nice thing about us is we have a grocery store attached to our cafe and our bakery and our kitchen, mm-hmm. so we have all the, you know, you the get ingredients the from in our store, okay. and it's sort of a safe place. So. It's not that hard to find it once you get it. So that's why his movie is so great. We get into the whole conversation about cross-contamination, too, which is so easy. And the whole reason why I made the movie was to talk to people about what can you do if you know someone, one of your loved ones, one of your friends has celiac disease or some type of problem related to wheat and gluten. How can you help them? How can you make life easier for them? That's the the genesis of the whole concept behind the film. Here's the thing is we're not only culturally interested and health-wise interested, but we want to know what's delicious. How do you figure out, going back to the 70s, right, Bailey, there were so-called health food cookbooks that would come out, and the food was just (laughs) horrible. Since then, we've evolved to how do we make these foods delicious. How do you both do that? You take a regular recipe that's got gluten in it, and then you just convert it into one that's gluten-free by using different additives like xanthan gum and... Different flours in substituting and finding a a combination that's going to give you not only the flavor, but also the texture that you're going to be looking for. Mm. Because in in gluten-free products, you can find out that there is some combination or typical thing there's nothing whole grain, so it's not so great for the body, actually. Right. And there's almost a metallic taste. You're talking about the baked goods? Your baked goods in yeah. particular. You're trying to feed people at your table. I will tend to just make everything gluten-free and not say a word and say everybody can eat everything. And, and that's what we do in our store. I know. <laughs> so how do you watch out for that? Um, excuse me while I have your No, dessert. please help Go yourself. Ahead. 
our kitchen is a dedicated gluten-free kitchen and baking facility, so we don't have any ingredients from flours or anything else in the kitchen that could potentially cross-contaminate from creating a dust. And that's hugely important because you're right. right it, it takes 20 parts per million. So yeah. if somebody takes a, like a pizza place, if a pizza place right. has a gluten-free dough that they buy from a third party, they bring that dough in, they take the regular spreading dough, throw it down on the yep. on the table, that will contaminate it right there. Right. Yeah. They take the same knife and cut it, that will exactly. contaminate but it Bailey, right there. This is true that when you're in a restaurant kitchen... I mean, I've been with people who are celiac, which is very serious. People can die from this. The restaurants aren't understanding that flour on a counter over here on the right wall can fly into the air, as flour does, and contaminate things on the left wall 50 feet away. It's very difficult for somebody going out and trying to experience or or have a normal lifestyle, find what they need and find it uh, that they can fit in and find a safe place. We also create and sell pizza doughs and bagels, and we distribute it to various restaurants, but we have to explain to the restaurants, you either have to do it this way or it doesn't count. <laughs> and then right. the people, who, obviously, who are not celiac, who are just gluten you know, sensitive, they don't mind that as much. But the celiacs really have to watch out. They Serious. come into our store and they go, uh, are you sure? You know, they're a little well, hesitant. They and yeah. They're trained. This mm-hmm. is their life. They mm-hmm. want to make sure that what they're putting in isn't going to be a life-changing so issue. You, what was that I just ate? It was like a was, blueberry thing? Oh, that, that's that thing. the blueberry oh, donut. That's my blue, I it's have a problem. Unreal. Dave has a little issue with that. I'm it's on an a every donut morning a day thing. diet. Yeah. It's my bakers gave me for my birthday a I think it was giant, your wife's idea, by the okay, way. Well, thank Just you. Saying. But they made a giant blueberry donut for my birthday cake. <gasps> I did finish almost all yeah, of it. Yeah, he did. In, you uh, know what? Honestly, <laughs> I would have that as my birthday These are all amazing. I'm, I'm just <laughs> doing the round so robin much. on this please, plate full please. of thank you. sweets in front of me, and they're amazing. It, We're with uh, Kelly and David Boudreau, who are co-owners, also having to be married to each other, of Nature's Grocer Gluten-Free Cafe in Vernon and in Bloomfield, Connecticut. And Bailey Pryor is here from The Real McCoy Rum, based in Connecticut, and you did the film, Gluten Free, which is on PBS right now. Here's the thing. I am reading more and more how people love to take wax at others who are gluten sensitive. Do you think that the majority of people would choose to have so much of your diet eliminated. You know, they think, oh, it's a trend. Statistically, the research that we figured out was that there's approximately 3 million people in the United States with celiac disease. That's a lot of people. Wow. And so they're estimating closer to 8 to 10 million people have some form of gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity. There's lots of different terminology that people are using. The best explanation I've heard about this so far is the fact that Gluten comes from wheat and other grains, obviously, also. But basically, wheat has hybridized with grass over the last 15,000 years. And when they found the original einkorn wheat, they did a little test on that, and they figured out that it's got about 12 chromosomes. So if you look at today's emmer and durum wheat, you have 24 and 48 chromosomes Mm, because it's naturally hybridized over 15,000 years with grass. So imagine imagine if three times a day, instead of eating that toast for breakfast, that sandwich for lunch, that uh, nice bread for dinner, you go outside on your lawn and rip out a handful of grass and eat that three times a day. What would that do to your digestive system? That's kind of what's happening to people who have 
wheat-related illnesses. This is not a scientific thing by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a nice discussion I had with one of the doctors that's in the movie. Since we don't really understand what's going on, you can't possibly just poo-poo this. You can't just look at this and say, three million people who can actually die from eating this stuff because it's killing the the, Mm -hmm. the villi in their small intestine. How is Mm -hmm. it possible that we can just look at that and say, oh, this is not real and this is not true and the gluten thing is all... Well, well, how many people do they estimate are gluten-sensitive? You know, not full-blown The numbers vary, but I've heard 8 million to 10 million people in the United States. Sick, as in flu, hair loss, oh, yeah. gut pain. They're if, linking it to infertility, the all sorts of depression, depression, sinus infections, everything. So I just tried the two of you this carrot cake. I'm a carrot cake fan. Me too. We this had it at our is wedding. really good. If you didn't know it was gluten free, you wouldn't know it was gluten free, mm-hmm. or at least the way that you perceive. I never would have picked that out with any of the stuff I'm eating here today. I never so would have picked that a single one of these Thank is gluten free. Because my kids, when they were younger, had issues with food, so we kind of like moved everything out of our diet and then moved back in. Hmm. And we were eating stuff that just tasted like cardboard yeah, all the time. Yes. It was awful. That's the great thing about people being really aware of gluten related problems is that now there's all this amazing food being made. So the people who actually have real problems with this now have an incredible selection of really great stuff out there and you guys are part two uh, thank, thank for that. you and thank you for informing people. you know I'm thinking <laughs> thinking about your rum <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> together. this has what, been going what, on from the beginning what, 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 what could go which product could that rum go into I mean it could Many. has anyone ever done a rum donut well, what nuts would go with the best with rum walnut walnut, walnut for and sure nice really a nice candied yeah. walnut yes. can you see a candied walnut oh, topping yeah with the, with the rum donut inside. It sounds like oh. a faith donut to me. I'm coming it? over yeah. to your place right after this. <laughs> <laughs> faith in donuts, folks. Yeah, faith in donuts. <laughs> um, so, can I ask you, you two, Bailey? You might not know this, but they met in college. They were both studying opera. And now here they are doing this business together, which is not easy, but you're just lovely people. And so do you, when you're together, do you sing in the car? (laughs) You know what's funny? I was thinking of this because a lot of times when we go places, they go, can you sing for us? And it's really embarrassing. But we have a basset hound, and this is a crazy story, a basset hound mix. She's the best dog ever. Her name is Petunia. And anytime I sing opera, she starts howling. She like crazy. It's duet. like a Facebook phenomenon. And, you know, we still sing, but whenever we sing with each other now, since we've been married for so very long, I just look at him and go, you're singing so loudly in my ear. Can you please chill out? <laughs> go get me a cocktail or something, <laughs> you know, so... You were opera, classical yes. opera. So what do you, you don't do In a God of all the things you <laughs> <laughs> We actually used to do the show, The Broadway to the Met, and we actually made our new store so we could do fundraisers and concerts because we're at a certain age now. We're like, we can do our own concerts. So yeah. we do like Broadway and I. What do you sing at the Broadway <laughs> thing when well, you do a show? A lot of stuff from Porgy and Bess because I, really? get, I sadly will never get to play that role. That's the kind of thing I do. And that's my dog's favorite songs. And then, summertime. And then, you know, just old school. (laughs) Summertime. Just old school. But do you do any of those together? Yes, we do. do Do Yes. Like, like what? what? Anything what is... you can do, I yes. can do. And that also, kind of okay, thing. Okay, come yeah. on. Tony and Maria. <laughs> and then Maria. Maria. I'm begging yes. you. Um, no. no, seriously, okay. we've What's... had rum. <laughs> we've had maybe we've some had more mom. <laughs> the sugar rum. is kicking yeah. in, folks. Yeah. Just, just back up. Come on. Just start <laughs> one. Who cares? You, right? Yeah. Only you, 
you're the only thing I'll see forever in my heart on you earth everything I do, do nothing else but you have her there's and there's nothing for me but Maria this is so funny. everything that I see is Maria Tony Tony always you every thought I'll ever know everywhere I go you'll oh. be Dinner and a show. It's been a few years. You had a crazy life, let me tell you. And our kids just roll their eyes going, oh my gosh, here they go again. Seriously, that was fantastic. I could have harmonized with the dog, I think. The dog is actually pretty good. I should have gone, oh. <laughs> we'll that, send you a video. It's hilarious. no, seriously. That was. I would love to see the video. We'll we'll put it online. Thank you so much for for being um, courageous and generous in singing that oh, way. Thank I, you. It's that an was honor. also gorgeous. Thank and you. I really, after eating five things, absolutely delicious. Awesome. Thank you. Not you know gluten, gluten free, whatever. It's absolutely delicious. All just in itself, right? Absolutely. Really I love it all. Yeah. Thank I'm glad you tried. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. What can we sing? Let's sing something. What do you remember from your... Well, I know. No, what can we drop sing? Dropkick Me Jesus Through the Goalpost of Life. It's <laughs> one of my favorite show tunes. I just can't hit how the about, high notes. How about all, all the things you are? Do you know oh, that yes. one? Oh, that's so you, hard. I pick high key you notes. You yeah. are the harshless breath of evening. That oh, we don't know the words. I don't yeah, know the words exactly. Only the lyrics you are the angel glow of springtime that lights a star. We're awesome. You <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, let me sign off on behalf of Faith Middleton and the Food Schmooze. Thank you very much for tuning in today. This is Bailey Pryor, your guest host. Have a wonderful evening. Good night. <laughs> if we could only remember the words, we know. So it's good. like. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not signing off. No way. <laughs> you won't lose your job. <laughs> We're on Connecticut Public Radio, Thursdays at 3, Saturdays at noon, weekdays, listen for my 60-second food schmoozes, and never eat more than you can lift. You didn't say that. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast on your schedule. And when you need a little more party in your life, we're here online at foodschmooze.org. And we hope you'll talk with us on Facebook. We're at Faith Middleton Foodschmooze.